Stories, fables, ghostly tales. There is a house like no other, smothered in wretched tendrils and tentacles of eldritch power. A house on a street rightfully shunned, with urban legends of lives lost and souls withering away to dust. This house does more than just consume your body, but it takes something even more precious, a human soul. Today's episode is the final part of the story The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. We now see our protagonist and their uncle, Mr. Whipple, no correlation to Mr. Whippy, investigate deeply into the house and uncover a terrifying truth that they had assumed posed a threat brought on by this house. And they're not wrong. Oh, not wrong indeed. Side note, as I read more on Lovecraft, I realized that his real-life uncle was called Whipple, a man who doted and looked after Lovecraft from the age of three. He in fact encouraged Lovecraft to pursue writing as a career, introducing him to the winged horror books. A lovely tidbit of fact that Lovecraft immortalized the man that helped him become the man he was. Now, take some time if you will to review the podcast, say hi and even support the show where all funds go back into production and a shout out to C.R. Lewis for such a lovely email that you sent through. Totally blew me away and thank you for your kindness. Now turn the lights off, the sound up and get ready for something eldritch. Chapter 4 The Shunned House Continued On Wednesday, June 25th, 1919, after a proper notification of Carrington Harris surmises as to what we expected to find, my uncle and I conveyed to the shunned house two camp chairs and a folding camp cot, together with some scientific mechanism of greater weight and intricacy. These we placed in the cellar during the day, screening the windows with paper and planning to return in the evening for our first vigil. We had locked the door from the cellar to the ground floor, and having a key to the outside cellar door, were prepared to leave our expensive and delicate apparatus, which we had obtained secretly at a great cost. As many days as our vigils might be protracted, it was our design to sit up together till very late, and then watch singly till dawn in two hour stretches, myself first and then my companion, the inactive member resting on the cot. The natural leadership with which my uncle procured the instruments from the laboratories of Brown University and the Cranston Street Armory, and instinctively assumed direction of our venture, was a marvellous commentary on the potential vitality and resilience of a man of 81. Elihu Whipple had lived according to the hygienic laws he had preached as a physician, and, but for what happened later, would be here in full vigour today. Only two persons suspected what did happen, Carrington Harris and myself. I had to tell Harris because he owned the house and deserved to know what had gone out of it. Then, too, we had spoken to him in advance of our quest, and I felt after my uncle's going that he would understand and assist me in some vitally necessary public explanations. He turned very pale, but agreed to help me, and decided that it would now be safe to rent the house. To declare that we were not nervous on that rainy night of watching would be an exaggeration both gross and ridiculous. 
We were not, as I have said, in any sense, childishly superstitious, but scientific study and reflection had taught us that the known universe of three dimensions embraces the merest fraction of the whole cosmos of substance and energy. In this case, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence from numerous authentic sources pointed to the tenacious existence of certain forces of great power and, so far as the human point of view is concerned, exceptional malignancy. To say that we actually believed in vampires or werewolves would be a carelessly inclusive statement. Rather, must it be said that we were not prepared to deny the possibility of certain unfamiliar and unclassified modifications of vital force and attenuated matter, existing very infrequently in three-dimensional space because of its more intimate connection with the other spatial units, yet close enough to the boundary of our own to furnish us occasional manifestations which we, for lack of proper vantage point, may never hope to understand. In short, it seemed to my uncle and me that an incontrovertible array of facts pointed to some lingering influence in the shunned house, traceable to one or another of the ill-favoured French settlers or two centuries before, and still operative, though rare and unknown laws of atomic and electronic motion. That the family of Roulette had possessed an abnormal affinity for outer circles of entity, dark spheres, which for normal folk hold only repulsion and terror. Their recorded history seemed to prove, had not then the riots of those bygone 1730s set moving certain kinetic patterns in the morbid brain of one or more of them, notably the sinister Paul Roulette, which obscurely survived the bodies murdered and buried by the mob, and continued to function in some multiple dimension space along the original lines of force determined by a frantic hatred of the encroaching community. Such a thing was surely not a physical or biochemical impossibility in the light of a newer science, which includes the theories of relativity and intra-atomic action. One might easily imagine an alien nucleus of substance or energy, formless or otherwise kept alive by imperceptible or immaterial subtractions from the life force or tissue and fluids of other and more palpable living things into which it penetrates and with whose fabric it sometimes completely merges itself. It might be actively hostile, or it might be dictated merely by blind motives of self-preservation. In any case, such a monster must of necessity be in our scheme of things an anomaly and an intruder, whose extirpation forms a primary duty with every man, not an enemy to the world's life, healthy and sanity. What baffled us was our utter ignorance of the aspect in which we might encounter the thing. No sane person had ever seen it, and few had ever felt it, definitely. It might be pure energy, a form ethereal and outside the realm of substance, or it might be partly material, some unknown and equivocal mass of plasticity, capable of changing at will to nebulous approximations, or the solid, liquid, gaseous, or tenuously unparticled states, the anthropomorphic patch of mold on the floor, the form of the yellowish vapor, and the curvature of the tree root in some kind of old tales, 
all argued at least a remote and reminiscent connection with the human shape. But how, representative or permanent that similarity might be, none could say with any kind of certainty. We had devised two weapons to fight it. A large and specially fitted Crookes tube, operated by powerful storage batteries, and provided with peculiar screens and reflectors, in case it proved intangible, and opposable only by vigorously destructive either radiations, and a pair of military flamethrowers of the sort used in the World War, in case it proved partly material and susceptible of mechanical destruction. For like the superstitious Exeter rustics, we were prepared to burn the thing's heart out, if heart existed to burn. All this aggressive mechanism we set in the cellar, in positions carefully arranged with reference to the cot and chairs, and to the spot before the fireplace, where the mould had taken strange shapes. That suggestive patch, by the way, was only faintly visible when we placed our furniture and instruments, and when we returned that evening for the actual vigil, for a moment I half doubted that I'd ever seen it in the more definitely limned form. But then I thought of the legends. Our cellar vigil began at 10pm, daylight savings time, and as it continued we found no promise of pertinent developments. A weak filtered glow from the rain harassed street lamps outside, and a feeble phosphorescence from the detestable fungi within showed the dripping stone of the walls from which all traces of whitewash had vanished, the dank, fetid, and mildew-tainted hard-earth floor with its obscene fungi. The rotting remains of what had been stools, chairs, and tables, and other more shapeless furniture, the heavy planks and massive beams of the ground floor overhead, the decrepit plank door leading to bins and chambers beneath other parts of the house, the crumbling stone staircase with ruined wooden handrails, and the crude and cavernous fireplace of blackened brick, where rusted iron fragments reveal the past presence of hooks, anderons, spit, crane, and a door to the Dutch oven. These things, and our austere cot and camp chairs, and the heavy and intricate destructive machinery we had brought. We had, as in my own former explorations, left the door to the street unlocked so that a direct and practical path of escape might lie open in case of manifestations beyond our power to deal with. It was our idea that our continued nocturnal presence would call forth whatever malign entity lurked there, and that being prepared, we could dispose of the thing with one or the other of our provided means as soon as we had recognized and observed it sufficiently. How long it might require to evoke and extinguish the thing, we had no notion. It occurred to us, too, that our venture was far from safe, for in what strength the thing might appear no one could tell. But we deemed the game worth the hazard, and embarked on it alone and unhesitatingly. Growing drowsiness made me remind him to lie down for his two-hour sleep. Something like fear chilled me. As I sat there in the small hours alone, I say alone, for one who sits by a sleeper is indeed alone, perhaps more alone than he can realize. My uncle breathed heavily, his deep inhalations and exhalations accompanied by the rain outside, 
and punctured by another nerve-wracking sound of distant, dripping water within. For the house was repulsively damp, even in dry weather, and in this storm positively swamp-like. I studied the loose, antique masonry of the walls and the fungus light and the feeble rays which stole in from the street through the screened window, and once, when the noisome atmosphere of the place seemed about to sicken me, I opened the door and looked up and down the street, feasting my eyes on familiar sights and my nostrils on wholesome air. Still, nothing occurred to reward my watching, and I yawned repeatedly, fatigue getting the better of apprehension. Then the staring of my uncle in his sleep attracted my notice. He had turned restlessly on the cot several times during the latter half of the first hour, but by now he was breathing with unusual irregularity, occasionally heaving a sigh which held more than a few of the qualities of a choking man. I turned my electric flashlight on him and found his face averted. So rising and crossing to the other side of the cot, I again flashed a light to see if he seemed in any pain. What I saw unnerved me most surprisingly, considering its relative triviality. It must have been merely the association of any odd circumstance with the sinister nature of our location and mission, for surely the circumstance was not in itself frightful or unnatural. It was merely that my uncle's facial expression, disturbed no doubt by the strange dreams which our situation prompted, betrayed considerable agitation and seemed not at all characteristic of him. His habitual expression was one of kindly and well-bred calm, whereas now a variety of emotions seemed struggling within him. I think, on the whole, that it was this variety which chiefly disturbed me. My uncle, as he gasped and tossed in increasing perturbation, and with eyes that had now started open, seemed not one but many men, and suggested a curious quality of alienage from himself. All at once he commenced to mutter, and I did not like the look of his mouth and teeth as he spoke. The words were at first indistinguishable, and then, with a tremendous start, I recognized something about them which filled me with icy fear till I recalled the breadth of my uncle's education and the interminable translations he had made from anthropological and antiquarian articles in the Revue des Du Mondes. For the venerable Elu Whipple was muttering in French, and the few phrases I could distinguish seemed connected with the darkest myths he had ever adapted from the famous Paris magazine. Suddenly, a perspiration broke out of the sleeper's forehead, and he leaped abruptly up, half awake. The jumble of French changed to a cry in English, and the hoarse voice shouted excitedly, my breath! My breath! Then the awakening became complete, and with a subsidence of facial expression to the normal state, my uncle seized my hand and began to relate a dream whose nucleus of significance I could only surmise with a kind of awe. He had, he said, floated off from a very ordinary series of dream pictures into a scene whose strangeness was related to nothing he'd ever read. It was of this world and yet not of it a shadowy geometrical confusion in which could be seen elements of familiar things in most unfamiliar and perturbing combinations. There was a suggestion of queerly disordered pictures superimposed one upon another 
an arrangement in which the essentials of time as well as of space seem dissolved and mixed in the most illogical fashion. In this kaleidoscopic vortex of phantasmal images were occasional snapshots, if one might use the term, of singular clearness but unaccountable heterogeneity. Once my uncle thought he lay in a carelessly dug open pit with a crowd of angry faces framed by straggling locks and three-cornered hats frowning down on him. Again, he seemed to be in the interior of a house. An old house, apparently. But the details and inhabitants were constantly changing, and he could never be certain of the faces or the furniture, or even the room itself, since doors and windows seemed in just as great a state of flux as the presumably more mobile objects. It was queer, damnably queer, and my uncle spoke almost sheepishly, as if half expecting not to be believed. When he declared that of these strange faces, many had unmistakably borne the features of the Harris family, and all the while there was a personal sensation of choking, as if some pervasive presence had spread itself through his body and sought to possess itself of his vital processes. I shuddered at the thought of those vital processes, worn as they were by eighty-one years of continuous functioning, in conflict with unknown forces of which the youngest and strongest system might well be afraid, but in another moment reflected that dreams are only dreams, and that these uncomfortable visions could be at most no more than my uncle's reaction to the investigations and expectations which had lately filled our minds to the exclusion of all else. Conversation also soon tended to dispel my sense of strangeness, and in time I yielded to my yawns and took my turn at slumber. My uncle seemed now very wakeful, and welcomed his period of watching, even though the nightmare had aroused him far ahead of his allotted two hours. Sleep seized me quickly, and I was at once haunted by dreams of the most disturbing kind. I felt in my visions a cosmic and abysmal loneliness, with hostility surging from all sides upon some prison where I lay confined. I seemed bound and gagged and taunted by the echoing yells of distant multitudes who thirsted for my blood. My uncle's face came to me with less pleasant association than in the waking hours, and I recall many futile struggles and attempts to scream. It was not a pleasant sleep, and for a second I was not sorry for the echoing shriek which clove through the barriers of my dream and flung me to sharp and startled awakeness in which every actual object before my eyes stood out with more than natural clearness and reality. I had been lying with my face away from my uncle's chair, so that in this sudden flash of awakening I saw only the door to the street the window and the wall and floor, and ceiling towards the north of the room, all photographed with morbid vividness on my brain, in a light brighter than the glow of the fungi or the rays from the street outside. It was not a strong or even a fairly strong light, certainly not nearly strong enough to read an average book by, but it cast a shadow of myself and the cot on the floor, and had a yellowish, penetrating force that hinted at things more potent than luminosity. This I perceived with unhealthy sharpness despite the fact that two of my other senses were violently assailed, for on my ears rang the reverberations of the shocking scream, while my nostrils revolted at the stench which filled the place. My mind 
as alert as my senses, recognize the gravely unusual, and almost automatically I leapt up and turned about to grasp the destructive instruments which we had left trained on the moldy spot before the fireplace. As I turned, I dreaded to what I was to see, for the scream had been in my uncle's voice, and I knew not against what menace I should have to defend him and myself. Yet after all, the sight was worse than I had dreaded. There are horrors beyond horrors. And this was one of those nuclei of all dreamable hideousness which the cosmos saves to blast an accursed and unhappy few. Out of the fungus-ridden earth steamed up a vaporous corpse light, yellow and diseased, which bubbled and lapped to a gigantic height in vague outlines, half human and half monstrous, through which I could see the chimney and fireplace beyond. It was all eyes, wolfish and mocking, and the rugose insect-like head dissolved at the top to a thin stream of mist, which curled putridly about and finally vanished up the chimney. I say that I saw this thing, but... It's only in conscious retrospection that I ever definitely traced its damnable approach to form. At the time, it was to me only a seething, dimly phosphorescent cloud of fungus loathsomeness, enveloping and dissolving into an abhorrent plasticity to one object on which all my attention was focused. That object was my uncle, the venerable Illu Whipple who with blackening and decaying features leered and gibbered at me and reached out dripping claws to rend me in the fury which this horror had brought. It was a scent of routine that kept me from going mad. I had drilled myself in preparation for this crucial moment, and blind training saved me. Recognizing the bubbling evil as no substance reachable by matter or material chemistry, and therefore ignoring the flamethrower which loomed on my left, I threw on the current of the crook's tube apparatus, and focused towards that scene of immortal, blasphemous, the strongest ether radiations which man's art can arouse from the spaces and fluids of nature. There was a bluish haze, and a frenzied sputtering, and the yellowish phosphorescence grew dimmer to my eye but I saw the dimness was only that of contrast, and that the waves from the machine had no effect whatsoever. Then, in the midst of that demonic spectacle, I saw a fresh horror which brought cries to my lips, and sent me fumbling and staggering towards the unlocked door to the quiet street, careless of what abnormal terrors I loosened upon the world, or what thoughts or judgments of men I'd brought down upon my head. In that dim blend of blue and yellow, the form of my uncle had commenced a nauseous liquefaction whose essence eludes all description, and in which there played across his vanishing face such changes of identity as only madness can conceive. He was at once a devil and a multitude, a charnel house and a pageant, lit by the mixed and uncertain beams that gelatinous face assumed a dozen, a score, a hundred aspects, grinning as it sank to the ground, on a body that melted like tallow, in the caricatured likeness of legions, strange and yet not strange. I saw the features of the Harris line, masculine and feminine, 
adult and infantile, and other features old and young, coarse and refined, familiar and unfamiliar. For a second there flashed a degraded counterfeit of a miniature of poor mad Roby Harris that I had seen in the School of Design Museum, and another time I thought I caught the raw-boned image of Mercy Dexter as I recalled her from a painting in Carrington Harris's house. It was frightfully beyond conception, toward the last, when the curious blend of servant and baby visages flickered close to the fungus floor, where a pool of greenish grease was spreading. It seemed as though the shifting features fought against themselves and strove to form contours like those of my uncle's kindly face. I like to think that he existed at that moment, and that he tried to bid me farewell. It seemed to me I hiccuped a farewell from my own parched throat as I lurched out into the street, a thin stream of grease following me through the door to the rain-drenched sidewalk. The rest is shadowy and monstrous. There was no one in the soaking street, and in all the world there was no one I dared tell. I walked aimlessly south past College Hill, and the Athenaeum down Hopkins Street and over the bridge to the business section, where tall buildings seemed to guard me, as modern, material things guard the world, from ancient and unwholesome wonder. Then grey dawn unfolded wetly from the east, silhouetting the archaic hill and its venerable steeples, and beckoning me to the place where my terrible work was still unfinished. And in the end I went, wet, hatless, and dazed in the morning light, and entered that awful door in Benefit Street, which I had left ajar, and which still swung cryptically in full sight of the earlier householders to whom I dared not speak. The grease was gone, for the mouldy floor was porous, and in front of the fireplace was no vestige of the giant doubled-up form traced in nitre. I looked at the cot, the chairs and instruments, my neglected hat and the yellowish straw hat of my uncle, Daysness was uppermost, and I could scarcely recall what was dream and what was reality. Then thought trickled back, and I knew that I had witnessed things more horrible than I had dreamed. Sitting down, I tried to conjecture as nearly as sanity would let me just what had happened, and how I might end the horror, if indeed it had been real. Matter, it seemed not to me, nor ever, nor anything else conceivable by mortal mind. What then, but some exotic emanation, some vampirish vapour, such as Exeter rustics tell of as lurking over certain churchyards? This I felt was the clue, and again I looked at the floor, before the fireplace, where the mould and nitre had taken strange forms. In ten minutes my mind was made up, and, taking my hat, I set out for home where I bathed, ate, and gave my telephone an order for a pickaxe, a spade, a military gas mask, and six carboys of sulfuric acid, all to be delivered the next morning at the cellar door of the shunned house in Benefit Street. After that, I tried to sleep, and failing, passed the hours in reading and in the composition of inane verses to counteract my mood. At 11 a.m. the next day, I commenced digging. It was sunny weather, and I was glad of that. I was still alone for as much as I feared the unknown horror I sought. There was more fear in the thought of telling anybody. Later, I told Harris, only through sheer necessity, 
and because he had heard old tales from old people which disposed him ever so little toward belief. As I turned up the stinking black earth in front of the fireplace, my spade causing a viscous yellow ichor to ooze from the white fungi which it severed, severed, I trembled at the dubious thoughts of what I might uncover. Some secrets of inner earth are not good for mankind, and this seemed to me one of them. My hand shook perceptibly, but still I delved. After a while, standing in the large hole I'd made, with the deepening of the hole, which was about six feet square, the evil smell increased, and I lost all doubt of my imminent contact with the hellish thing whose emanations had cursed the house for over a century and a half. I wondered what it would look like, what its form and substance would be, and how big it might have waxed through long ages of life-sucking. At length I climbed out of the hole and dispersed the heaped-up dirt, then arranging the great carboys of acid around and near two sides, so that when necessary, I might empty them all down the aperture in quick succession. After that I dumped earth only along the other two sides, working more slowly and donning my gas mask as the smell grew. I was nearly unnerved at my proximity to a nameless thing at the bottom of a pit. Suddenly, my spade struck something softer than earth. I shuddered and made a motion as if to climb out of the hole, which was now as deep as my neck. Then courage returned, and I scraped away more dirt in the light of the electric torch I had provided. The surface I uncovered was fishy and glassy, a kind of semi-congealed putrid jelly with suggestions and translucency. I scraped further and saw that it had form. There was a rift where a part of the substance was folded over. The exposed area was huge and roughly cylindrical like a mammoth, soft blue-white stovepipe doubled in two, its largest part some two feet in diameter. Still more I scraped, and then abruptly I leapt out of the hole and away from the filthy thing, frantically unstopping and tilting the heavy carboys and precipitating their corrosive contents one after down that channel gulf and upon the unthinkable abnormality whose titan elbow I had seen. The blinding maelstrom of greenish-yellow vapour which surged tempestuously up from that hole as the floods of acid descended will never leave my memory. All along the hill people tell of the yellowy day, when virulent and horrible fumes arose from the factory waste dumped in the Provident River, but I know how mistaken they are to the source. They tell, too, of the hideous roar, which at the same time came from some disordered water pipe or gas men underground, but again I could correct them if I dared. It was unspeakably shocking, and I do not see how I lived through it. I did faint after emptying the fourth carboy, which I had to handle after the fumes had begun to penetrate my mask. But when I recovered, I saw that the hole was emitting no fresh vapours. The two remaining carboys I emptied down without particular result, and after time, I felt it safe to shovel the earth back into the pit. It was twilight before I was done, but fear had gone out of the place. The dampness was less fetid, and all the strange fungi had withered to a kind of harmless greyish powder, which blew ash-like along the floor. One of the Earth's nethermost terrors had perished forever, and if there be a hell, it had received at last the demon soul 
of an unhallowed thing. And as I patted down the last spadeful of mould, I shed the first of the many tears with which I have paid unaffected tribute to my beloved uncle's memory. The next spring, no more pale grass and strange weeds came up in the shunned house's terrace gardens, and shortly afterwards, Carrington Harris rented the place. It is still spectral, but its strangeness fascinates me, and I shall find mixed with my relief a queer regret when it is torn down to make way for a tawdry shop or vulgar apartment building. The barren old trees in the yard have begun to bear small sweet apples, and last year the birds nested in their gnarled boughs. And thus concludes The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. The thought that this creature of gargantuan size lies dormant beneath the sewers of Old England, sleeping or being manufactured on the souls and bodies of the dead. Lovecraft strikes again and, as usual, lands a bullseye. A huge thank you to my Patreon supporters, supporting the show with as much as a coffee a month or more, and I'm lucky to have. My Ode Knight Tea Titan, Megasaurus Maya, Sproutless. Beneath the shunned house lies a dark and treacherous midnight forest, forever growing, a maze of deadly plants and organic traps of ooze and poison. In this maze is a being called the Sproutler, born of eldritch waters and reaching above the ground and pulling prey meters beneath the roads and into its spindled clutches, where barbed teeth lie waiting for its morsel. The Sproutler's true power, though, is in that whatever it touches, it permanently alters as eldritch waters course through the poor soul's veins. One never knows its effects, but always a horror is born from the flesh of the living that it touches. My white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rex, cruel morning star, a single plant living solitary amongst its brethren flora, a plant in fact that never grows within 30 meters of another. The cruel morning star is a beacon of light to the unwary, to those that seek direction in the darkest of mazes within the eldritch flower maze beneath the city streets. Adventurers that mistake this plant for a light source are met with a direct and plummeting blow to the skull as the cruel morning star detects movement within its vines, a blow that upon making contact constricts, tears, and rends, a light at the end of a tunnel in more ways than one. And my white tea warlord Paige Kramer, pressure paddlings. Not all creatures within the eldritch maze are cruel, some can be useful. Pressure paddlings can be found underneath the wiry and bristly tethers of the undergrowth, and used by pathfinders for one key reason. They emit a plant-based tremor that forces the eldritch to quiver and run. Scatter the paddlings on the ground and wallop them hard, then watch them resonate, and the eldritch branches scatter around you. Use the paddlings and find your path. Now, for my amazing Earl Grey Enforcers. Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fasic, Alia Arcane, and Solstra. And my remaining supporters, Catherine Mason and Sunshine Days. Thank you all for listening, you loveliest of people. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy to make me pale. But remember, that little tremor that crawls up your spine or the tingle that makes you smile 
from a plotline that's just fine. That's the magic of storytelling. It really is divine. You took the time to listen and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.